Hello, my new friend, and welcome to the Bookkeeping with a Purpose podcast. I also want to say welcome to the world of church finances. So whether you come from a secular accounting background or no bookkeeping experience at all, you will quickly find out that there are aspects of church finances that are unique to the ministry. And regardless of the size of the church, the giving, or the title you're given, there are basic principles that every church finance individual needs to know. In this episode, we are going to start with number one of five, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hey there, friend. Welcome to the Bookkeeping with a Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Brown, and I love all things Jesus, business, and church finances. If you're like me, you're probably tired of searching the endless pages of Google for answers to your questions about church finances and payroll clergy taxes, and housing allowances. You'd like help with getting the right processes and procedures in place for your church office or business to help it run more efficiently, because let's be honest, there's so many choices out there. And wouldn't it just be awesome to find a group of like-minded believers who understand your desire to do business and serve the local church God's way? In this podcast, you will learn all about the unique and awesome world of church finances. We will cover everything you need to know to make sure the church or churches you serve are in compliance with IRS tax code, whether you are a staff member or an outsourced bookkeeping professional. If you are ready to walk out the calling the Lord has on your life and serving His church with excellence, then you are definitely in the right place. So grab your Bible, a notebook or laptop, and the dream God gave you because we're doing this. It's time to serve Him with excellence. All right, how I hope that you are having a fantastic uh, day today. We are going to touch on the topic of the basic principles that every church finance individual needs to know. There are five that I have listed, but we'll see how many we make it through today. We may make it through all five or we may have to um, break this up. But the first one that you need to understand and that it was it was surprising to me because I didn't know this, and a lot of people who get into the church office also have questions about this. But first and foremost, churches do not have to file annual tax returns like other businesses and nonprofits do. So, uh, nonprofits in general, they are required to file an annual 990 form, whether that's a 990N or 990EZ or the full blown 990. But churches are a niche within the niche, and they're not required to file that. That was a little weird being a bookkeeper um, for many, many years and getting the data together, following those annual returns for the businesses, getting the, the information together. You didn't have to do that when you get into the church. But even though there's not an annual 990 uh, form that needs to be filed, the church still has got to file payroll tax forms. Payroll taxes are the number one way that churches get in hot water with the IRS because they're not filing and paying those properly. So we want to make sure that the federal uh, 941 forms are to be filed quarterly. And you can do that either by mailing it in or you can file it online. I'm still old school. I don't trust, even though software programs, you can click it to file it and it says it files it. I have had to do too much payroll uh, representation work where the computer says that filed, but it didn't get filed. I still like to print it out, sign it, stick it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and put it in the mail. There's two options that you can do it that way. Um, Also, another payroll uh, return that you will need to do is likely if your state has state withholding, you'll need to do either a monthly, quarterly, or annual 
uh, reporting return for those as well. And then in some instances, you'll have locality taxes that you'll need to do returns for. So again, remember that even though a church is not required to file a nonprofit 990 on an annual return, they are still required to file all of their payroll tax uh, returns. So since we're talking about payroll, we're going to go ahead and move into the second one, which is unemployment taxes. Again, when I got into the church office, this was something new to me because working with small businesses and bookkeeping, and I'm in the state of Kentucky, so depending on the state that you're in, most states require that unemployment insurance be made. Well, most churches are exempt from unemployment insurance and unemployment taxes, okay? There are a few states, and you always need to check with your own um, state Department of your division of unemployment or your state Department of Revenue. Some states do actually require that even churches pay unemployment taxes. All churches are exempt from fuchsia taxes or federal unemployment taxes. So when you're setting up your employees and payroll, make sure that you uncheck that box or if you're outsourcing your payroll. And if you're outsourcing it, hopefully the individual or the corporate, the company that you're using is aware that churches do not pay federal unemployment taxes. That box should be unchecked. And then in states, remember to, if you're in a state that is, they are not required to pay unemployment taxes to, again, uncheck that box in um, QuickBooks, if you're using QuickBooks, which is what our firm uses, is QuickBooks Desktop to run our payroll because I think it's the most versatile. It's the easiest to do things that you can't do in other software programs, um, but there's a box where you can uncheck the unemployment. So you also need to keep in mind that since churches aren't paying unemployment taxes, that means that if an employee is laid off or leaves the church for whatever reason, they're generally not eligible for unemployment benefits. That's another thing I didn't know when I got into the church setting. As I had shared on a, the previous podcast, when I went into business, I thought, oh, well, if it doesn't work, I can just draw unemployment. No, you can't. As a business owner, you can't draw unemployment if your business closes. Same thing with a church. <laughs> if something happens with the church and you get laid off or, you know, circumstances cause of separation, you cannot draw unemployment there either. Although, there are certain times when a church can make special provisions through a private insurer or other church-approved arrangements where they can actually provide unemployment compensation even though they're not required by the state to provide that. So that's just something kind of interesting, sorry, when you're thinking about um, payroll and unemployment taxes. Number three, let's move on to addressing clergy tax laws. And girlfriend, we could talk about this all day, but we're going to make this one short and sweet. We'll just touch on it. The dual tax status of a qualified minister is an issue that will get many, many churches in trouble if it's not addressed properly. I'm just going to put it that way. I have yet to... it never surprises me when I speak with a potential client, whether it's a a church, whether it's, you know, outsourcing their payroll to our firm, or whether it's doing uh, tax preparation for a minister, how many are not doing it properly. First and foremost, I want to make sure that you know from the get-go, the very first time I ever talk about minister taxes, is that not every minister who calls themselves a minister qualifies for the special tax treatment 
from the IRS. There are, it's actually listed in the tax code, two requirements that a minister has to meet in order to be considered a qualified minister for um, IRS purposes. Number one is they are to be licensed, ordained, or commissioned. Now, the IRS does not tell you what licensed, ordained, or commissioned actually means. That is actually up to the denomination or the church, the head church of your ministry as to what their definition of licensed, commissioned, or ordained means. But it's got to be put in their bylaws and written down somewhere as to this is how someone in our denom- a minister becomes ordained or becomes commissioned, or this is the licensing procedures, okay? So first of all, the minister has to be licensed, ordained, or commissioned. Number two, they have to be actively serving in ministry. That means that they need to be able to uh, participate in the sacraments. Sacraments, the two main sacraments are the Lord's Supper, observance of the Lord's Supper, and baptism. If you have a pastor who says, I'm licensed, ordained, or commissioned, but they're not allowed to do uh, baptisms, they're not allowed to leave the Lord's Supper, or they don't do weddings, or they don't officiate funerals, okay? These are things that are expected duties and part of the clergy ministry. And if they are not able to do these, then they are not a qualified minister. Whether or not someone qualifies as a minister under the IRS regulations, that status actually affects how their taxes are calculated and reported and whether or not they qualify for a housing allowance. If you are going to have anything to do with church finances, whether you're a church treasurer, a church bookkeeper, absolutely, if you are ever involved in church payroll, if you serve on the stewardship team or the personnel team or the finance team in any way, form or fashion, you need to understand qualifying ministers, housing allowance, the dual tax status of the minister, who qualifies as either an employee or an independent contractor, which will be another topic. And I'm sorry I'm saying that so much, but I'm just now starting out with this podcast and I have so many topics that we can talk about. And I'm like, no, I can't go in depth on this one yet. We got to go into this one. Anyways, let's go on. We will finish. We will do all five of these today. Okay, so number four on the topics, five basic principles that every church finance individual needs to know is how to manage donations. Woo-wee! This is probably the number one question outside of housing allowance that I get asked is the difference between a restricted fund, designated funds, how do you account this one? Can somebody do this and do that? Okay, so the difference between a restricted and a designated fund is a topic that can still confuse many and cause issues within the finance reporting process if it's not handled properly. The IRS does give guidance on this, on how these are to be handled. And, but the main thing that you need to know, just briefly, okay, is that designated funds need to be voted on in advance by the church board or the members, whatever your approval process is, to create the fund before anyone may designate giving to those particular funds. So an example is a lot of churches have a bereavement fund or a church, some of your smaller churches may still have a flower fund or a van fund, um, a children's fund. So these are funds that they're long lasting. 
It's not going to be just a short time for like a project. Okay, they're, they're, they're ongoing. You may put, we'll just throw out $500 a year in your um, benevolence fund, in, the, in your budgeted line item. Okay, well, sometimes, unfortunately, especially during COVID, a lot of churches, that just blew their budget out of the water because there was such a huge need. So your church can vote to decide to create a designated fund for a benevolence fund where people can actually donate to that fund. And then those funds can be used um, for those purposes. On the contrast is restricted funds. Now, these are monies that received by a donor with the restriction that they only be used for a specific purpose and nothing else. These are people that, the example that I use most often is they write a check to the church for $2,000 and they say, I absolutely hate that ugly green shag carpet in the choir room. I want new carpet put in there. I'm giving you $2,000 to buy a new carpet. Well, they're still maintaining control of those funds. They're telling you how you can and cannot spend those funds. So number one, the donor does not receive a tax deduction for that money because they're maintaining control of those funds. And second of all, those funds by law have to go and be set aside and can be only spent to replace the carpet in the choir room. If the church decides they're not going to do that right now, it is not something that they want to address anytime soon, those funds either have to stay there until the carpet is replaced or they have to return it to the original donor or they have to get permission from the donor to use the funds for something else. I really discourage accepting restricted funds. It's really easy when someone tries to hand you a check, says, here's five grand, you know, I want it spent on XYZ, it's listed in the memo. You have every right to say, you know what, we don't accept funds like this. I'm sorry, thank you for your generosity, but we're giving you your check back to you. Don't cash it, don't deposit it. Just immediately give it back to them. Along with um, the restricted fund, you and the donor need to realize again that there's no deductible contribution um, is allowed since the donor is maintaining control by demanding that it be spent in a specific manner. The IRS frowns on that and your church can actually get in quite a bit of trouble if they use those funds for any other purpose other than the restricted amount given by the stated by the donor if the donor tries to bring up the issue at some point. Okay, and the last one that you need to know about is handling receipts. <laughs> Once you enter the church finance world, if you're now I'm talking to people working in the church, working on staff or a volunteer, you don't realize this, but when you took the position as the bookkeeper or the church treasurer, you become the official unofficial receipt police. <laughs> okay. No matter how easy or organized you try to make the process, it will become an adventure at times trying to get those receipts for the credit card statements, to get those receipts for this charge that comes in or whatever. I always absolutely recommend to put into place a credit card and receipt procedures and policy that will help you with this task. Not having receipts to verify a church purchase should result in it becoming a personal charge, which means taxable income or reimbursement from the staff member. You do this enough, 
I promise you they will learn to keep those receipts. And there are so many apps that people can put on their phone where they can just take a picture of that receipt, send it to you. I mean, there's just too many easy ways to prevent this from happening. And I know that there are just some that just don't like to keep up receipts. It's stressful to them, but it's got to be done. Every month when you get that church credit card statement, you need to have a receipt for every single charge on there. And if you don't, put it in the policies that if receipts are not turned in within 30 days from the date of purchase, and especially when it's time to pay that reconcile and pay that credit card bill, that it will be considered a personal charge and it will either be added to their taxable income or reimbursement will be required and you'll have to get that. Those are the five basics that you need to start with. Number one, churches don't file annual tax returns, but they are required to do payroll taxes. Number two, most churches don't pay unemployment taxes, and depending upon the state you're in, you need to check with that. Number three, ministers don't pay taxes like everyone else, so you need to understand who qualifies as a qualified minister according to IRS purposes. Number four, not all donations are handled the same. You've got restricted funds and uh, designated funds, and you need to understand the difference between those. And number five, that receipts need to be required for all purchases, and you need to put that in a policy so that it's not a surprise when you, you know, hand somebody and say, you need to either reimburse this or we're adding it to your wages. That's it. That is um, your five. And then uh, next week, we'll move on to something else. I hope you have a fantastic week and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Bye. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If this podcast inspired you or helped you in any way, please do me a couple of favors. Number one, leave me an awesome review on Apple Podcasts as that helps me more than you know. And number two, share this with a friend so they can be encouraged as well. And until next week, remember to serve him with excellence and represent him in all you do. Bye-bye.